Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Welcome to my latest experiment. This is the big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. I just want to relax. Nice little warm bath. <laughs> I don't know how much longer I can hold this. Sarah Connor. Now look, carnage. Dead. Dead, dude. Well, what's fun about that? Quite sweet, really, aren't they? God, I love this street. No one. Hey, guys, welcome back to the podcast. This is Claire from Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures. Before we have called the person who I was about to say his name, a guest participated in the show, but now that she's probably going to be doing the rest of our episodes with us, including the series of Hashtag Operation Universal Horror. So before before I say her name, I'm going to list the stuff that we have to show first, the boring stuff, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know about boring, but continue. So the first movie that we watched was Frankenstein. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was not boring at all. It was great. We loved it. Invisible Man. Okay, that was a little boring. Now, hold on, though, because I feel like maybe your dad and I tainted you, because I remember at the beginning of the Invisible Man episode, you were like, yeah, I liked it, and then we kind of crapped all over it, and then now you're like, meh. (laughs) Meh. All right, so the Invisible Man, and then what are we here to talk about today? Bride of Frankenstein. So before, when we were going through, I was thinking Frankenstein was the monster and Bride of Frankenstein was all about how Frankenstein gets his bride. But now that we've watched the movie, I kind of feel like it's actually more about Frankenstein's monster. I think it's more Frankenstein is the monster and then Bride of Frankenstein, the bride is Elizabeth and Frankenstein is the guy, Henry Frankenstein, right? Yeah, this whole naming convention and Bride of Frankenstein and the way that they're leaning into it and the idea that, like, I feel like when they're saying Bride of Frankenstein, they mean the Bride of the Monster that you get at the end. Like, I feel like the the title character is not Bride of, of Frankenstein as in Elizabeth. I don't really understand. This is super it's, confusing. Well, you know what it is? It's all these internet trolls that like to get on their high horse and be like, um, actually, it's the monster... Uh, maybe they have not seen Bride of Frankenstein, but Hollywood appears to have completely endorsed the idea that Frankenstein, you know, is Plus, also the name of the monster. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, the intro for Bride of Frankenstein is, um, you know, James Will has included a scene where Lord Byron and Percy and Mary Shelley are sitting around talking about the fact that she came up with this great story. And they, I guess it's their way of like re, you know, introducing the characters and the events of the original movie. Um, and it's it's a fun conceit, but it's her telling the story. But when Byron says, um, you know, Frankenstein, a, a a monster made up of dead pieces, it it really feels like Byron, even in the movie, calls the monster Frankenstein. And I like, I don't, I don't really get it, and it's confusing. Um, I think that. For this conversation, we need to establish what we're going to call the monster and how we're going to call everybody so that nobody's confused while we're talking because I'm already confused. What about shitty Carl? For- <laughs> <laughs> I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> uh, so what, you know, there's there's a series of movies made by uh, a couple of guys, um, uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. They made movies called Spring, Resolution, and The Endless, and uh, Synchronic, which is coming out um, soon. Yeah, 
they're they're uh, on display behind where we record right now because I have some signed copies of some movies of theirs. Um, but they kind of have established their own cinematic universe, and the uniting element of that universe is a character called Shitty Carl. And while we're watching Bride of Frankenstein, Danielle leads over to me and not quietly goes, you know what this movie needs is a shitty Carl. No, that's not what it... First of all, I don't do anything quietly. <laughs> and secondly... Where it came from is in the first episode when we were recording and we kept tripping over the name of the monster. We started calling him Karloff. Oh, right. So in my head, (laughs) I'm like, okay, this is Karloff. Now I'm just going to call him Carl for short. And then he did something horrible on screen. And I was like, I mean, really, this is like the 1930s version of shitty Carl. And then I cracked myself up and was laughing all by myself (laughs) like I do. And then I made the mistake of sharing that with Billy. And now everyone knows. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, you're not secrecy anymore. Yeah. Bob. All right. So do you want to go with the same that we used last time, Claire? Is is we'll call the monster Karloff and Frankenstein, Frankenstein, and uh, and so forth. Does that yeah. make sense? Sure. I think it would help if we also referred to Frankenstein as Doctor Frankenstein. Personally, I agree. So we'll call I'm him. I'm just gonna call him Henry and call him Monster Frankenstein. No. No. no that's, that's gonna confuse both said. of us. But I just said I'm going to call the monster Frankenstein and Frankenstein. Right, Mr. that was Henry. after you agreed to call the monster Karloff. Oh. <laughs> That's why it's confusing. All right, so here's the deal Henry can be either Henry or Dr. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. The monster can either be Karloff or the monster. Elizabeth is Elizabeth. Um, uh, Dr. Pretorius is Dr. Pretorius. Uh, the the king of of the the tiny jar people, <laughs> which we'll get to. Okay, um, and okay, and then let's just go with that. Okay, but the first thing I want to get into is let's talk a little bit more about that intro. Um, you know, Danielle, you talked about the Invisible Man and how unhappy you were with the fact that there were really only two main women in that movie, and both of them were reduced to hysterical screaming messes. What did you think about their portrayal of Mary Shelley? I uh, okay. Wait, hold on. Can I can I actually back up? Yeah. Before that, okay. So I felt bad. I was listening to our episode from last time, and I really felt bad that we had talked about the Invisible Man, and you know, was it the first uh, instance of levitation on screen and stuff like that? And we didn't really know the answer, so I decided to go back and and research it. All right. What do you got? Well, what I discovered is that a French director by the name, and I'm going to butcher this. Um, but it's like Georges Méliès or something. Georges Méliès. Thank you. I don't speak French. Um, but he put out a film in 1897 mm-hmm. where he um, was the first person to do the technique of superimposition of mm-hmm. films. And then another one in 1898 that was the first one to levitate objects on screen. Mm-hmm. Which means that there is actually no redeeming qualities to the Invisible Man. Because we were given them like, okay, the story sucks and they're really awful about women. But there's this, it's so innovative. This is like 40 years later or 30. So not innovative. I also think George Melier, by the way, was a, 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 a magician. And that that's part of what he did. Yeah. Was so I was stagecraft. I was reading the, about, the it was like the first 10 horror films. It was him and a guy... Um, who was also named George, but like George Allen or something. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, and then there was a German guy and they were making these early horror films and they were all originally um, street magicians or yeah. something like that. So, yeah, you were right about that. That was cool. OK, so I have two things to say. One question. 
You said he made a movie in 1998. 1898. They didn't even have technology. How did they do that? First of all, technology is uh, anything that you construct to accomplish a task. Yeah. So a technology, bow and arrow, is technology. A spear is technology. Um, uh, But they did have cameras and stuff. um, And Georges Méliès definitely was at the forefront of using cameras to tell stories. I also learned, and I've already forgotten his name, but uh, I think it was a German guy, but the first ghost film ever Mm -hmm. was in the 1890s, and it was exactly three minutes long. Yeah, that sounds right. So (laughs) It's like, that doesn't count. That's barely even a commercial. I know, and and now you have Quentin Tarantino movies that are 187 minutes long. Uh, You know what? Quentin Tarantino could benefit from that guy's editor. (laughs) What was your second thing, Claire? This crazy screaming lady who jumped up on the top of the table. The Invisible Man was like, it was acting as if the Invisible Man was a mouse. She was like, ah! She's yes, just dancing yes. on the table. Mm-hmm. She's the same lady, also hysterical as the late as the like butler girl for the <laughs> for Elizabeth. Yeah. yeah, she is. She plays basically the same character. I think James Whale just thought she was funny. And Although so... I actually liked her performance much, much more in Bride yeah. of Frankenstein. It, like you could, I could understand what she was better. saying, and I think it fit very well as um, sort of the like white a white person. Sure, like a, like an older person who just knows what they like and knows what they think and doesn't really care too much about what other people think. Well, and you know what I think the major difference, though, is that in The Invisible Man, she is an imbecile. Like, she doesn't yeah. do anything right. Yeah. She doesn't understand anything. She doesn't repeat anything correctly. Um, but in this movie, she's the only one who knows what's going on. Yeah. And <laughs> and so the, her character is treated with more respect, even if her portrayal of it doesn't really change. Um, and it changed the way I felt about it. So yeah. I was I was not great with it, but I was more okay with it. Um, in answer to your question about how do I feel about women, um, or, or Mary, <laughs> not how I feel about women, sorry. <laughs> how do I feel about the portrayal of Mary Shelley? Um, so they're I, all right. They're, yeah, they're fine. I mean, <laughs> women are fine. Mary Shelley. <laughs> No, um, I'm cutting so, none of this, by the way. I know, it's all I'm standard. sure. No, uh, Mary, Mary Shelley's portrayal, I thought was really kind of confusing because when when the film first started, and we've just seen The Invisible Man, so I'm coming into it with some pretty intense negative feelings about how James Whale treats women, right? And so Lord Byron starts pontificating, as Lord Byron probably did in real life from what we know about well, it. Well, he was a dude in rich. Right. And also liked to write words. So right. yeah, yeah, he right. definitely went on. Yeah, I was like, oh, great. So now we get to learn about how really it's Lord Byron behind Frankenstein. <laughs> and and then she starts talking and, and, and it was very confusing because number one, she's doing needlepoint the entire time. Yep. Which is just weird. Like, there's no indication that I've ever seen that Mary Shelley was big into needlepoint beyond the fact that she was a woman living in a time period when that was expected. So I feel like there was some conversation about like, well, what do what do women's do when they're just sitting around? Oh, they sew things, um, you know, which is just bizarre. Uh, but but I, do. I know <laughs> that's like not a great example because I do so. But um, but she's you know she has um, some good lines and stuff like that in the intro. 
Um, and and James Whale kind of credits her with coming up um, with the Bride of Frankenstein story, which I had to go and look up because I was not sure. And she never wrote a sequel um, to no, Frankenstein. No, but I think that there's a, like a smaller subplot that suggest as part of the her frankenstein story that suggests that this might be a thing that's going on in the background or that they maybe not the bride aspect but the dr pretorius aspect or something i'm not totally i don't sure. know it's it's been way too long since i read it and i don't remember very much i do remember that um or at least i thought i remembered that the monster in the book was um kind of interested romantically in a human woman in elizabeth yeah, maybe. Um, but it it was too. I mean, I read that like twenty years ago. It was too long. Well, anyways. In the drunk history, the guy kills Elizabeth. The, uh, the monster have... kills Elizabeth. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and maybe does so in the book. In the book, I think so too. But I think it was accidental, right? I don't no. know. He said no? in the drunk history, he said, "If you don't make me wife, I'm gonna kill your fiance." Yeah. Well, I mean, that sounds like a fit for the story. That does sound like a fit for the story. So. But anyway, so I liked that. Um, I also found out that the actress that portrayed the bride in mm-hmm. the film um, was a woman named Elsa Lanchester, who the whole film, I was like, I know this face. I couldn't place it, though. The reason is because she's in Mary Poppins like 20 years later. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, so I, I was having trouble because of the age difference. But uh, at any rate, Elsa Lanchester was a British actress that was very famous at the time, and she played both Mary Shelley and the bride Mm -hmm. in the film, Um, which I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know how common that was at the time. It's clearly um, something that you'll see in a lot of good films where um, an actor will portray two different characters. But so, did you ultimately have a problem with Byron saying... You know, talking over her like, like how could, how could, how could you come up with a story this good? Yeah, absolutely. I had that's a problem exactly with that. I thought that was garbage. Treated. Go ahead. That's exactly how they treated women back then. That's how they treat women now. Look at her. She's like, what? What do you think about that, Claire? That sucks for women, but not for me. Okay. Why is that? <laughs> because I don't like most of the stuff that most girls and women like. Most women and girls are like. Like, like, kind of like cheerleaders in the films because actual cheerleaders are actually very smart and put their work before cheerleading. Mm-hmm. Sometimes their cheer stuff is even held off so that they can actually finish posters and stuff. They're very educated, and the coach doesn't let them do stuff, doesn't let them do their cheerleading stuff until they actually finish. So cheerleaders are very underrated in the films. If, it, if there's any directors watching this, you better change your cheerleader roles. <laughs> Claire's been reading books about cheerleading, by the way. Well, I but I think you're I think that you're totally correct though, Claire. And I I think if you base your idea of what women and girls like on what you see in the movies, I would say 90% of what what you think is going to be just totally off base and and completely wrong. I think that very much. Yeah. Because a lot of the portrayal is what men th- think women would do or what men think women would want or what went what men think women would say yeah and i mean in the in the scene i think mary shelley really doesn't take any of byron's crap oh yeah uh, she tells him off yeah. uh, with a smile on her face but yep. she still tells him off um but he's extremely condescending i think and she's happy that she gets to tell him off i well i agree with that for sure yeah absolutely so let's see what did you think of the movie overall, Claire? Did you enjoy Bride of Frankenstein? Yeah. Out of all the movies that we've watched so far, would you say it's your favorite? No. 
if you're talking about Universal Horror, yes. But if you're talking about all the movies we've watched, Cooties is my favorite. <laughs> I was talking about Universal Horror. Oh. But yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good mile marker. Cooties. Okay. All right. Um, so what makes Bride of Frankenstein your favorite? Um, Bride of Frankenstein is much more explainative, I guess. How, how do you mean? They don't really call him Frankenstein anymore. They call him the monster. Mm-hmm. What did you, um, you know, when we talked about Frankenstein, um, I think one of the things we talked about was the fact that the monster responded, um, you know, Karloff responded to people being horrible to him and that he met violence and disgust with violence and, and disgust. And when that little girl by the lake played with him, he met that with sweetness. Um, what did you think as he was able to learn to speak and really start to put words to some of the thoughts and emotions that we saw him feel in the first one? Did you think that that was a good thing that they gave him the ability to speak? Or did you think that took away from um, the monster as a character? I liked it because the monster as a character, I really don't think that Frankenstein was the actual like main character. I really feel it was Henry Frankenstein. Because you see him from the beginning grave robbing and you see him till the end. Mm-hmm. You see him get carried off a windmill and in his bed. That's true. So, in, yeah, so the original Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is the main character. Do you think that the monster is the main character of Bride of Frankenstein? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of think that. What do you think, Danielle? I do. I think that he's, um, that he's definitely the main character of the story. I think that by giving him speech, um, they're also allowing him to really fully become the protagonist of the story. What's a protagonist? Um, The protagonist is a literary term, which applies to films also, that means like the hero. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean hero in a way that like he saves people. Technically does. But yeah, he does actually. You're right. Um, But he is advancing the good side. Like he tried to save Maria, his friend. He didn't, he he was very nice to the evil guy. No, not the evil guy. The, the, blind, guy, the guy. blind guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean evil. No, the his the the monster's relationship with the blind. Um, I guess monk isn't quite right, but the guy who's living on his own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is very interesting to me uh, because I don't know if you notice, um, but the monster calls uh, the blind man friend mm-hmm. in exactly the same way that he calls what his supposed bride will be friend yeah um at the end of the movie and to my mind he's really not distinguishing relationship wise between the two of them as far as anything goes what what do you think do you think he sees them the same um yeah i do i think that when he's um in the mausoleum and he says um that essentially i only like dead things mhm um, I think that he really, that his experience with the blind man taught him that he, what he wanted, what was missing from his life was a friend. Um, and then when he saw what happened to this man, his house was burned down. He was dragged off by the villagers. Um, and Frankenstein's monster who almost did it. Um, all of his experience with humans has taught him that, you know, the fate of this man is now probably not going to be very good. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And well, because he's different, right? I mean, the man told us 
that he had not had any interaction with humans in years because he's blind and it made the monster cry. Um, so I think that on some level, the monster internalizes that just by being his friend, he ruined his life unintentionally. And so he wants a friend, but it needs to be a dead friend because like, otherwise he's just going to bring pain to. Well, it's almost like it, it needs to be somebody who is already a monster. Right. Um, like him, because right. otherwise there's, there's not a life to destroy. Yeah, sure. I don't, I don't think that there's anything inherently like sexual or romantic about his interest in mm-hmm. having a mate. I mean, the, the two doctors who are just kind of gross in their own right keep calling her his mate. He never says that. He says he wants a friend. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want, I don't think he even wants a bride. Yeah, that was their idea. He asked for a friend. He never said it needed to be female or pretty or anything like that. If she is still alive who played her, she probably isn't, but if any relation is to it, I'm going to say that the character that she plays isn't pretty, but not the girl. The girl is very pretty. Mm-hmm. The actress is. Yeah, the actress. Would you describe Boris Karloff's monster as pretty or ugly? What do you mean? The monster. Do you think oh. he's attractive or do you think he's ugly? If you, if you could look pa- if you only found the sweetness in people's hearts, then you could say he was pretty or mm. handsome. But if you only saw what was on the outside, then you would say he was an ugly man. So I think Maria was one of the girls who looked inside to find the sweetness in people's hearts instead of what instead of what they look like on the outside. Mm-hmm. Like the saying, like the figurative language saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Mm-hmm. 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 I think, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I think that, Frankenstein's monster and then the bride are an excellent representation of what happens when you let men design things (laughs) because because if you're creating an ideal man right they did not really pay attention at all to what his face looked like but they made him big and strong and intimidating sure dominating and powerful and then the same person plus another scientist is constructing the bride and she looks nothing like him she's little and diminutive and petite and you know almost frail looking and pretty and they put and if they're stitching along her jawline like they were trying to conceal it yeah you know i mean they clearly paid more attention to her facial attributes than to his Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because in their mind they were creating uh, his friend. Well, what do all men want? Well, they want you know something small and pretty. Mm-hmm. It's not true. It's not true. I know. <laughs> well, I'm sure James Whale would agree with that, right? Because you know he's not really into women. Um, but uh, you know, what does Mary Shelley think about what men want? What mm-hmm. does James Whale think about what you know straight men want? Yeah. Like, I think those. Could very well be in line with that. Why do you think the bride was so repulsed by Frank? By good God, by by <laughs> by the monster at the end of the movie. I think maybe they got a fresh brain too, maybe, and maybe the brain from her, and maybe the brain from the from the accident hospital. Put air quotes on that. <laughs> well, the heart was from the accident hospital. The brain, he said, he grew it. From yeah, you know that's interesting because so. 
okay, so first let's let's take a pause. Sidebar. Yeah. Uh, Can doctor- we talk about the tiny people in yeah, jars okay, now? Okay, so the Dr. Pretorius character comes in and he's like... So the Dr. Pretorius person thingy comes in and is like, I need to talk to Harry, I think. Is Henry. 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 And the, and the lady, the butler lady, was like, uh, <laughs> yeah. She's like, it's the middle of the night, bro. What are you doing? Yeah. Mad science business. Get out of the way. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and, and Henry agrees to go over to his place at the freaking middle of the night, which, is, which I thought was going to happen is that the guy was going to kill him. Was, the guy okay. was going to kill Henry. Because, hmm. I mean, he had a reason to. You know, it's interesting because he threatens Henry. He says, I know that you're responsible for all of those murders. And, you know, I know that you're the one who should be punished for that. And you don't really want me telling people that. I kind of thought maybe Henry was going to kill him. So Claire and I were like on opposite sides of the coin there. But, you know, they don't kill each other because their love of mad science brings them closer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Pretorius brings uh, Henry to his own uh, warehouse. When Pretorius said he'd been dabbling in the art of um, animating life himself and playing God, did you think <laughs> that he was going to pull out tubes of tiny people? A whole bunch of Thumbelina characters? <laughs> no. I was not. Exa- I, I thought that those jars were going to have body parts in them, actually. That's what I thought, too. When, she, when he pulled out it, I thought that he was car- I thought that he would carry like the murder Maria person like, that he dug up. Oh yeah, Claire did say that that he she thought when he because he pulls out a large crate that kind of does resemble a child's casket, and Claire was like, "Oh no, he made a monster out of Maria." God, what a turn that would have been! I though. know. If Claire Pretorius, would have made a way better movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because Pretorius brings out, oh man, I've been dabbling also, and here's this fresh child's body I've reanimated. Check this out, and then Henry like dies of uh, horror at uh, the awfulness of that. But no, he brings out uh, a jar full of tiny people, and the tiny queen is disgusted by her tiny king husband. <laughs> And the mm-hmm. tiny king husband stages a, a, a bell jar break yep. and uh, goes to attack his wife and gets picked up by tweezers and dropped back <laughs> into his thing. like, And puts a teacup on top and, of it so he can't you know get what? out. Honestly, as I was watching it, I was like, okay, so James Whale, fresh off of Invisible Man, wanted to show off his technical ability. Yeah. Because being able to put tiny people that are actually sure. actors and, and carry I them around. I actually thought that scene looked really pretty, good. It did look good. Yeah. Um, I don't know I that it the advances ballerina. the story at all. I liked the um saint person. He was like, <laughs> oh yeah, the bishop, and then the ballerina that would only dance to one song. I when he said that he was like, she won't really dance. I was like, cause she's in a jar, and uh, he was like, cause, except for the one song. I was like, okay, but also she doesn't have a lot of space to move. <laughs> I well, I also like that he grew a mermaid from seaweed. Yeah, uh, that was part of it. Yeah, that was pretty. But did okay. But in, in all seriousness, okay. So he and I'm being genuine when I say this. When he pulls those jars out, and you're like, "What? Mm-hmm. What are you doing?" And then you see what's in them and what he's been dabbling with. If you're Henry Frankensteiner, you're like, "But what page of the book are you on?" Because we're not doing the same thing. All right, I'm reanimating the dead and bringing them back to life. You're growing seed people? <laughs> no, but no, no, no. Because they are doing the same thing because they're both playing God. Yeah, I suppose so. That's that's the link. There's actually a ton of spiritual or religious symbolism in this film. Sure. Like um, in the beginning, Mary Shelley explains that her uh, the theme of her first 
um, novel is about being punished for trying to play God. Um, and oh, I thought that she was a God person. I even said, and I was like, is she a relate? Is she does she believe in God? Because she does say a lot of things about how he she about how God would punish him for that. I mean, maybe, but I definitely think this movie suggests she's a Christian. Yeah, and then there's a scene where they are um, capturing Frankenstein and they have him tied to a very large pole and his arms are suspended over his head in a way that forces his elbows out to the side and it looks very much like a crucifixion scene um, to me. And then that got me thinking, okay, so if this is the son, then Frankenstein is the father. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is where some of the nomenclature issues come in you know, in terms of like, well, does Frankenstein refer to the monster or to the doctor? Because in um, in Catholicism specifically, I'm not sure about all sects of Christianity, but um, in Catholicism, you know, there's the concept of the Trinity where God is the father and the son. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking, oh, my gosh, is that where all this confusion is coming from? Is that Frankenstein is the doctor and the monster? Which Frankenstein? Yeah, exactly. Part of what drives, I think, some of that is um, the the Hayes Code, which has come into enforcement. So, uh, so a little bit of film history. Um, in the late twenties, um, censorship of movies was on the horizon, and a lot of the uh, production guilds got together and set up their own standards of censorship so that they could, in the hopes of avoiding um, federally enforced uh, censorship on what they were doing. And most people didn't take it very seriously. It was sort of like the production studio set some guidelines and were like, "Hey guys, don't f- don't don't do these." Um, and everybody was like, "Cool, cool, cool, cool. I'm gonna do whatever I want." Um, in the early 30s, right around the times that these movies are taking off, um, they set up the Production Code Administration, uh, the PCA. I forget I forget if I've got that exactly right, but it's the PCA, and the PCA's job it's is. Yeah, because the PCA's job is to involve themselves in the production process and review the materials and take an active role in saying what can or can't be done. So they took this idea of things that we should avoid and gave a body the job of reviewing movies as they come into play. And it's very religiously driven. Um, The guy, um, I forget his first name, his last name is Breen. Um, the guy who's in charge of the PCA is very Catholic. And so religious issues become a part of it. And the reason that this kind of comes to mind for this conversation is because like you were saying about the religious symbolism in James Whale's original production script, when he goes, when the monster goes to, um, the mausoleum, right. And he throws over the spire and goes under underground. There's that statue of uh, the crucifix uh, over another gravesite in the background of the scene. In the original script, he mistakes uh, the Jesus on the cross for a person that's been an actual person because he can't tell the difference between living and dead, I guess is the idea there. And he goes to rescue Jesus from the cross. And the PCA was like, that's blasphemy. You can't do that. And so they they changed the way that that scene was structured. They kept the religious symbolism, but instead of messing with it, he goes down below and then you get to see all of that. So I think some of this is there's Mary Shelley dealing with the idea of playing God and men driven um, to presume to be gods in their own right. 
Um, and there's the idea of what James Whale is looking at in, in terms of kind of similar themes and ideas. And then the, the PCA comes in and starts to inject themselves into that process. And I think it messes with some of the symbolism that's going on with that. If, if I were a very, very Catholic person, I would want the humor in the movie about it. And so if I were the very Catholic person, I would want that to happen. Where Frankenstein goes and tries to rescue the Jesus from the cross. Also, are we talking about Frankenstein, the original, or Bride of Frankenstein? Uh, I'm, pushes I'm, over the statue to get I'm it. talking about Bride of Frankenstein. Okay. So the original Frankenstein is um, in 1931. Um, the PCA doesn't exist yet, but the code does. So... James Will kind of gets to do what he wants. And you have that very scene where Dr. Frankenstein literally says he knows what it feels like to be God. Even if you uh, look at the Wikipedia page for the Hayes Code stuff, they give Bride of Frankenstein as an example, um, because in the original Frankenstein, he has that scene where he says, you know, he is now knows what God feels like. Um, that they are instructed to shy away from that type of blasphemous language as they as they deal with those concepts. So the movie still has those ideas in it in Bride of Frankenstein, but the presentation of them has changed. And that kind of makes, you know, so Claire, I mean, you know, you're not a very Catholic person, but like, what do you think about the idea of a body of people saying what can or cannot be in art? Does that make sense to you? Claire the artiste would say, Get out of their stupid body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about a literal body. I'm talking. Right. So why why would that bother Claire the artiste? Okay. So if I were James Whale and and these guys just walked in on my movie, like mm-hmm. they they're just like coming in like you cannot put this thing in there. Replace it. Mm-hmm. I would freaking flip out and <laughs> yell at them. Why? Because it's just it's just ignorant to a good piece of a movie. Mm-hmm. Honestly, what I feel like they're doing, they probably didn't even care about what the movie said. They just wanted a perfect little movie that was that resolved about all of them. Even though I know they probably didn't change every scene, they probably changed like seventeen of out of like the thirty scenes. You know, I agree very much um, with what you're saying. You know, the Hayes Code goes out of enforcement. I think the PCA goes out of enforcement um, towards the early 50s, the 1950s, um, because it was always a a production guild thing. But that body that formed the Hayes Code became the Motion Picture uh, Association of America, the MPAA, who now certifies all movies for ratings that are going to be released in theaters. So technically, they don't change any more like parts in the movie. Well, that's not quite correct, because here's what happens. If you send your movie to the MPAA to be reviewed so that you can go into theaters with it uh, under uh, with a with a rating, which is a big deal. It's important for a whole bunch of reasons. And the MPAA comes back and says, oh, yeah, this is uh, NC-17. You know, this is the next level above um, rated R. Right. You can choose to try and release your movies in NC-17 film, which means it can't be released in theaters nationwide. They're only specific theaters that will show it so automatically your theatrical audience is limited if your movie's rated nc-17 um, there are some stores that won't put it on their shelves most of us shop on the internet so i suppose that isn't as big a deal today in terms of like the sale of dvds and stuff 
Um, but it, it definitely was a big deal in the past. And so you as a filmmaker would have to say, okay, they gave me an NC-17 rating. If I go recut this movie and edit out some of the stuff that probably bothered them, maybe I could get it trimmed down to an R. And then you censor yourself in the goal of making money by allowing your film to be seen by a bigger audience. So, I mean, that that's still going on today. And instead of a production code administration or whatever it is, the PCA, it's MAA. the MPA who rates things and then says, hey, man, if you want to release this in theaters and on shelves, that's all fine. But, you know, they create the system that everybody buys into. I mean, like, Claire, what do you think about what movies are rated? Does that even register to you? No. Do I you... don't literally care about what it's rated. I just care about the movie, like the preview, the thing. Nobody really pays attention. It's kind of good that it tells you, but I mean, why don't you just put um, children, family friendly? Or um, I would put, I would not let your children see this because that it's, is it's a horror. that is literally what the ratings mean, though. G is general audience, means anybody can watch this. PG is parental guidance, meaning your kids can see this, but you might want to talk to them about it. You might want to make sure that they understand everything. Why do they put Barbie under PG? It oh, would- it's uh, they they put the notes on the um on the screens. There's there's probably like adult content or something in that, or something suggestive of something more than just what kids would do in their day to day lives. Um. Uh, PG-13 is parental guidance suggested under the age of 13, meaning if they're less than 13, you need to think real hard about showing this to your kids. If they're over 13, it's probably... I think it also means, PG-13 means you have to be 13 to buy a ticket on your own. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. I don't know. Um, And then R is restricted, meaning in the theater, you have to have a parent with you if you're under the age of 18. Um, and then NC-17 is no children under 17, meaning it doesn't matter if a parent's with you, you cannot see it in the theater if you're not a legal adult. That's not fair. What if, like, NC-17 is Creature from the Lack Lagoon, and that's an NC-17 movie? That's not fair, really, because, I mean, you want, if this is a movie that you're trying to get your kids to see, and then it's a freaking sev- NC-17 movie, it's not fair. So... With the way that the MPAA does their rating systems, there are a number of things that they don't like and that will bump the rating on a film. Um, Adult language is a big one. If they use curse words or something like that, it's not going to be a low rating. Um, Violence is one. Nudity is one. The biggest one that seems to set them off is sex. If the characters have sex, especially if there's also nudity at the same time, which I know that sounds weird, but sometimes in a film you'll have nudity, but it's not sexual. It's like they just got out of the shower. Or you'll have sex, but they're uh. under the covers, right? But if it's both at the same time, that that's going to almost always be an NC-17 rating. Uh, I would you know? say R, yeah. You think? Yeah, the explicitness of the sex and okay. how, how close they show stuff or don't show stuff. But do you agree, though, that like I can't think of a film off the top of my head that got an NC-17 rating for violence? Can you? Um, There. Yeah. It depends on how bloody Uh um, the violence is. What was Revenge? Uh, I think Revenge is unrated. Oh, okay, Because it was. My guess would be that Revenge would be NC-17. Oh, okay. Revenge is on the shutter thing. It's said unrated. Yeah. Okay. And and that's so here's that's another thing. Right. Okay, So theaters rely on rating systems. 
for placement on store shelves. They rely on the rating systems. So you as an artist then could say, nah, you know what? I don't want an MPA rating. I don't care. But that means no theatrical release. And it means that you're not going to be on a lot of store shelves. So that's changed a little bit um, in the latter years with unrated director's cuts, right? Streaming services, though, don't have to go to the MPA for ratings um, because they treat them like cable television and cable television is under no responsibility to go through the MPAA. And nobody really expects them to do that. And so none of the business models for the way that the people who buy movies to show on those um, streaming services, they don't have to think about whether or not something has a rating. So Coralie Fargie, who directed a Revenge, doesn't have to give two craps what the MPAA is going to think about a shotgun shootout between two naked, bloody people at the end of a movie where the entire house is literally painted with blood. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. She didn't have to change that at all. But if she wanted to put it in theaters... She would have to. She'd have to make a choice. Have it released as NC-17, which has its own stigma, right? Like the idea of, oh, it's rated X or rated NC-17. It used to be X, mm-hmm. um, rated X or rated NC-17. People are like, oh, that's, that must be a terrible movie. You shouldn't watch it. But even in your own review of movies, when you're trying to decide whether or not you should watch it, I've never heard you say, oh, but it's rated R, so I need to think more closely about this. What I've watched you do is read what the movie is about and go, is that going to upset me? I think, yes, it is going to upset me. I'm not going to watch it. And rating really didn't come into it. Well, and I think that's our family culture, though. I do. Oh, because, for sure. Because, you know, your dad and I are both very adamantly opposed to censorship, just in general. Um, I don't... One of the biggest reasons that we don't really change how we talk around you kids, even though a lot of my friends will talk to me one way and they talk to their kids a totally different way, Um, is because I'm crazy enough that I consider that censorship in my own house and I won't be censored. What is censorship? Censorship is changing something to make it more acceptable to other people. That's kind of what we've been talking about. That's just the word that sums all of that up. So you know me. If I don't like something, I'm like, oh, this is bullshit, right? Other people, if their kids are around, would go, oh, this is no good. But if their kids are not there... They would use different words. They're censoring themselves because their children are present, which is fine. I'm not saying that makes anybody a good parent or a bad parent. But my point is just your dad and I are really adamantly opposed to an extreme level, um, adamantly opposed to censorship in general. So in our family, we never talk about ratings of films. I don't even believe in rating films. I wish they would do away with it. You know, we talk about what's in it and how is that going to impact somebody. I tell you, one of the movies that upset me, profoundly upset me when I was a child and then again when I was an adult because I was like, oh, I'm grown up now. I'll try again, was Dumbo. And Dumbo is rated G. <laughs> that movie's super dark, though. But it is very dark <laughs> and it is very sad. Um, and I, it just didn't line up well with some trauma that I had from childhood lurking in my head. Um, and as a kid, it was just deeply upsetting to me. And then... When you were little, you were probably like two years old, um, we were watching movies and you were really into Fox and the Hound, which came out in the same general period. Um, Some Disney fans refer to it as the Disney Dark Ages because a lot of the movies that came out had a much darker feel to them. Um, You do it too. So don't say some of the Disney. Oh, no, I I consider myself a Disney fan for sure. But so we started looking at some of the other films that came out in that same time period. Um, because you loved Fox and the Hound. So I was like, well, maybe you'd like the um, rescuers and, you know, stuff like that. 
And so Dumbo was released from the vault. And I was like, okay, well, let's watch Dumbo. I remember that I hated Dumbo, but everybody else loves Dumbo. So it's probably fine and I'll be okay. And you enjoyed it fine. But I basically ended up in the fetal position. I could not handle that movie. Um, so just because something is has a low rating in my mind doesn't mean that I want to see it. Doesn't mean that I necessarily want my kids to see it, depending on what it is. I've never shown you guys Bambi uh, for the same reason. Ugh, that's a movie. But I, I think People the- People are always telling me that Bambi is like the best boomy ever. And I'm like, what's Bambi? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, you don't know what Bambi is? Yeah, it's a like, story of child abandonment. It's a- mm. I, I think uh, one of the things, Claire, that you you should be mindful of when you talk about movies and stuff with your friends is that our approach to showing you movies is, is very, than other yeah, it's very open. And this, this even this podcast re- reflects what we do when we watch movies that are not for the podcast. We talk about the movies and the things that we're seeing. And for us, movies are art and not just entertainment. And I, and I suppose if you think about a movie, because not everybody thinks about movies as art, they think about them as entertainment, just something fun or diverting to watch. And if you think about it just as entertainment, there's not a lot of redeeming value to, like you were talking about, you know, with revenge or something like that, with a shotgun shootout that's so bloody and vicious and mean at the end of it. Um, but if it's art and they're trying to say something um, with what they're showing you on the screen then there are some redeeming values to seeing that type of violence or, or that type of awfulness depicted on the screen. But it's also, you know, the ability to analyze a movie, to watch a movie and go, okay, what is the filmmaker trying to say to me is a skill. And that's why you and your dad started doing this podcast and initially was to, re- was to strengthen that skill for you. Um, and not everybody has that skill. And so, you know, Claire, there's a a famous film critic whose name was Roger Ebert, Um, and uh, he's passed away now. But, you know, while he was alive, uh, I think he was probably one of the best known people who wrote about movies um, in major publications. He had a television show because he was so good at it. Um, But one of the things that he said about movies is that movies are like empathy machines. What are empathy machines? And I think that's the perfect question for that. Um, Do you know what sympathy means? Where do you take pity on someone for doing something? Right. So where you take pity on someone because they are experiencing something. Empathy is like a version of sympathy where you relate to that person because you understand what they're going through. And you can put yourself in their shoes and recognize what you would feel if you were experiencing what they were. And so what Roger Ebert says that movies do is they give us a chance to see other people's experiences so that we can build our empathy for other people. He had this idea, basically, that the more that we watch movies, the more we get to know the people around us, the more empathy that we feel for the people around us, and the better we relate with each other and interact with each other. And the more it's easy for us to understand what other people are going through. Um, because I think one of the problems with people in general is that they tend to be dismissive of any struggle that they don't identify with. Um, and so he said, movies are like empathy machines. They give us kind of that illusion of a shared experience. You know, movies are usually told from a particular perspective, right? And, um, 
when you watch a movie from the perspective of someone, it is a little bit like walking in their shoes for that couple of hours. And um, so if you watch a movie, for example, that's told from the perspective of someone with a drug problem, and that's not something you have any experience with, you know, at all, at the end of that film, maybe you start to rethink some of your beliefs, you know, like, um, gosh, I thought everybody with a drug problem um, that if they just must not want to be better because if they wanted to be better, they wouldn't do drugs, right? It's very simple. But it's very hard to get off of drugs and drunk and drinking because you've shifted it into your lives. Like you, you've shifted Coca-Cola or Dr. Pepper drinking every morning into your life. And daddy, you've shifted monster every day into your life. Hey, I would actually point out it. that I haven't had a monster in like three weeks now. I've been drinking coffee instead. Yeah, your dad's about to and earn his 30 days off monster chip. <laughs> Let's not joke. Even jokingly compare sorry, that to sobriety sorry, test. Sorry, 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 <laughs> you're right. But my point is, it's very easy to write people off who are different from you, who are experiencing something different than you've ever experienced as bad. But if you spend a couple of hours looking at the world from their view, from their perspective, it's a little bit harder to do that. And kind of. so that's the idea of kind creating of. empathy machines. A kid that I know has dyslexia and she can't and she has to have her stuff read aloud to her. Mm -hmm. She has to she ha she can only read the books that are read aloud to her. So it limits all her choices because Epic has only like 60 books that you can read aloud. So she's limited to those. And if she wants to read an actual book, she has to have her parents or someone read aloud to her. Like she can read, like if she can point to the words, she can do that. But she can't point to the words on screen because our think pads, which is the computers we have, if you click it, it'll turn the page in Epic. But by having a friend who has dyslexia and has that problem, it allows you to see what a giant problem it is that there are only 60 books that can be read aloud because it limits her choices. And I, well, you know, I think we've been talking for almost an hour now. Um, and I think the, you know, the idea of movies as empathy machines and relating to the people around us is a really good conversation to have around Frankenstein because that that's a whole, it's a whole story about what it's like to be different, different and to be hated and not treated well. Different. Right. Well, yeah, because different's not a great word, right? <laughs> I mean, like different as a descriptor, like somebody's not normal is not good. Everybody is different. And I think the more that we embrace our differences, the more... Um, like when we were talking about Frankenstein, I would definitely be burnt at the stake for witchcraft for my personality. Sure, yeah. Because you're unique. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Um, so let's see. Does anybody have anything left to say about Bride of Frankenstein before we wrap up this episode? I had one thing. Okay. And uh and I meant to bring it up earlier when we were talking about women and then we got distracted or I did. Um, but I was very glad to see uh, I wasn't sure what to expect going into it because I had not seen this film ever. Mm -hmm. Um and I was very glad, honestly, that the that the bride that they created uh, did not accept um, the monster as her mate. Sure, yeah, but, the but, idea of creating a, a companion for somebody who has no choice in the matter yeah. kind of removes their agency. Yeah, it does. And I think <laughs> that, um, you know, especially with all the religious symbolism in the film, I was sort of thinking that they were going to... She was going to be Eve. She was going to be Eve, exactly. And she was like, um, no, and actually gravitates towards Henry as 
seeking comfort from him. And that also puts the monster at his most human manness because his response to that rejection is like, you know what? I'm blowing up the building. <laughs> That's pretty bad. It, it, well, it is. And it was sort of conflicting because on the one hand, you know, uh, if he had been anyone else being spurned by a woman should not have elicited that reaction that is ridiculous and but you know not but they spend two movies building up to that being his response to that final rejection right and like definitely with the way that things are right now and the type of conversation in our current era like it it really i Boy, there's some there's some uncomfortable chords struck there, in that final. There moment. are some uncom- uncomfortable chords, but if you look at it not, you know, what we were talking about before, that he's not looking at it as, as a romantic figure. Yeah. He, there's nothing sexual about it for him. Dead he things just now reject him. He wanted too. a friend. And now even someone who is exactly like him, yeah. who is going to be rejected from society exactly the way he is, doesn't want to be his friend. I can totally understand going, then I don't want to exist anymore. Um, not sure about the decision to take two people out with him. That was, you know, maybe questionable. The wife was already dead. They took him from dead parts and grew a brain from a freaking seed. Right. And the other guy, he was just clinically, chronologically. Clinically insane? Clinically Is that what you're, insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was. And but you know who's going to feed his tiny jar people speaking is of, a question. <laughs> speaking of Doctor Pretorius, though, the dude that played him them. was great. Oh, he was great. And some of those um, fade scenes where they would fade out of a scene, and the last thing you saw was his piercing black eyes. That yeah. was great. Yeah, a lot of a lot of really gorgeous shots too of below with the lighting and the shadow work. Really great stuff. I yeah. I thought yeah I I was a big fan of Bride of Frankenstein. I was a big fan of Frankenstein. Um, I think those are both really awesome movies. I, I agree that they're really awesome. Given that they're only 86 minutes, I think that, you know, uh, they could almost be considered two parts of a, of a movie. Yeah. Um, if I had to pick between the two of them, I agree with Clara that Bride of Frankenstein was my favorite. Claire? And uh, honestly, thinking about how now the PCA, I was kind of surprised that they didn't actually want him to change, that they didn't tell him to change the ad scene where the lady, where the lady, uh, the bride, the bride, mm-hmm. finger quotes, rejects him. Honestly, I thought that she was going to just going to attract to him and he was going to push her away. Hmm, interesting. He just wants a friend. He doesn't want a mate. Yeah, that would have been interesting if she, because her brain was grown and not dead or some, you know, some distinction there was a little bit more sophisticated than he was emotionally and she was capable of love and he just wanted friendship. That would have been a whole interesting third film. Way to go, Claire. You're welcome. Um, I think that kind of wraps up the conversation about Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I'm good. Claire? I'm good. Okay. So coming up next is Dracula and then... (laughs) Uh, And then I haven't decided. Um, I think we'll probably do The Mummy after Dracula. Um, but I thought you said something about like you were going to do like four movies and you're going to take a break and do like an Alamo one. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what I'm saying is I don't totally know what the schedule is going to be beyond Dracula. I know that we're going to get um, we're going to finish this series off with Creature from the Black Lagoon. Because it's the best one. 
I, I, I'm a fan of the movie um, and the story. Um, and uh, oh, from there, I'm not sure where we're going to go. And I'm not sure how many movies we're going to do between there. Now, I definitely want to do Dracula. Um, I think I'd like to do The Mummy as well. Um, and maybe one of the Wolfman movies. Um, but we'll see. I'm still lobbying for King Kong. Yeah, I, we could do King Kong. All right. Um, uh, if you don't already follow the podcast, uh, you can find Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures on Twitter at B-A-C-E-A podcast. Uh, wherever you do listen to the show, if you could like, rate, review, uh, that's exactly the sort of help that only listeners like you can provide uh, as we look to expand our audiences. If you are listening on iTunes or if you have access to iTunes, that's the big one. Uh, and we would love it if you could drop a review over there. Five star ratings. Nothing yes, below. Okay. Um, so you can find me at WB Das on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, I have a list of movies that we've been doing for Bill and Clary's Excellent Adventures. I've been remiss about updating it with the ones that we've done so far. Uh, but I think you'll find that we watch movies and record usually in advance of our scheduled times. Uh, so if you want to kind of know what's coming down the pike, feel free to follow me there and follow that letterbox list. So I think that'll do it for this episode. Uh, tune in next time for Dracula. Until then. Don't let the fangs get you by the neck. <laughs> it's good life advice. <laughs>